welcome to What's the Data Point? I'm Maria Doulis from the Citizens Budget Commission introducing this week's episode. My co-host Ben Max from Gotham Gazette will be back next week. So, what's the data point? 1981, the year in which the state legislature enacted S-7000A, the landmark bill that formalized the current property tax system for New York City. It established a highly complicated and opaque system with all sorts of bells and whistles. These structural features are the root of inequities that have been amply documented by the CBC in the pages of Gotham Gazette and by other groups. They are even the source of a lawsuit working its way through the courts now. What are some of the inequities? Here's one. A home worth $500,000 in Staten Island can have the same tax bill as a home in Brooklyn worth $1.5 million. Or another. Commercial and rental properties face tax burdens dramatically higher than one, two, and three family homes. This past May, Mayor Bill de Blasio and Speaker Corey Johnson formed an advisory commission on property tax reform. A few weeks ago, CBC, the Regional Plan Association, and NYU's Wagner School of Public Service held a panel to discuss the problem and potential reforms. What you'll hear is CBC's Anna Champany briefly describe the problems with the property tax, and then a panel of distinguished experts will discuss how the commission should consider approaching a solution. The panel was moderated by Moses Gates of the RPA, and it really gets in the weeds of the issues. So there have been a lot of big news developments recently, like Amazon coming to LIC and NYCHA's new strategic plan, and we're working on a lot of good stuff at CBC and Gotham Gazette, which means we'll have a series of good topics and guests in weeks to come. Stay tuned and stay warm. We'll be back with you next week. Good morning, and welcome to today's discussion of the problems, inequities, and potential reforms of the New York City property tax, uh, hosted by the Regional Plan Association, NYU Robert F. Wagner Graduate School of Public Service, and the Citizens Budget Commission. I'm Anna Champany, the Director of City Studies at the CBC, and I will kick off the morning. Moses Gates, the Vice President for Housing and Neighborhood Planning at the RPA, will be our moderator and will introduce our panel of distinguished experts. My brief presentation is a high-level overview of the property tax. The system itself is more complex than can be covered in 10 minutes. And for each point I discuss, there are numerous caveats and exceptions and you've also received a brief handout from the RPA. My title references four points about the New York City property tax, and none of them are news. It is fiscally important, complex, inequitable, and highly resistant to reform. One of the biggest hurdles to reform is that everyone believes they pay too much. And since property owners are unsure about whether they would end up paying more or less, we have been left with a system that, while understood to be unfair, has seen only modest incremental change. So as I said, the property tax is the city's largest and most stable revenue source. This year, the city is expecting to collect $28 billion in property tax revenue. That's 31% of all revenue and nearly half of the tax revenue. And the tax growth, the tax has grown an average of 6% a year for the last decade. So looking back uh, from 2000 through the projection for 2022, we see steady revenue growth in the property tax. Conversely, the non-property tax revenues in light blue, which include personal income tax, sales tax, business taxes, and a bevy of other taxes that the city collects fluctuate more and are considered economically sensitive. 
And the stability of the property tax is especially important for the city's ability to weather recessions. Uh, before we jump into the complexity of the, uh, the city's tax structure, let's quickly sort of reca recap how a property tax bill is calculated. Uh, so the first step is to determine the market value of the property, and this includes both the land and the building or the improvement. And from that market value, the taxable assessed value is calculated. One applies an assessment ratio, which is the share of the market value upon which the tax will be assessed. Some localities use the full market value, uh, but New York City uses fractional assessment, which means that the assessed value is a fraction of the market value. There are statutory limits on changes in the assessed value uh, that are applied, and lastly, any exemptions that the property is eligible for would be subtracted. After this, the taxable assessed value is multiplied by the nominal tax rate, and any abatements that the building is eligible for would be subtracted, which gives you the tax bill. So as we all know, the New York City property tax system is highly complex, much of it set in state law. New York City has a classified property tax system with parcels assigned to four classes and some subclasses based on use and size. New York, uh, sorry, class one is mainly one, two, and three family homes. The remaining residential properties are in class two. 2A, 2B, 2C are four to 10 unit residential buildings, including rentals, co-ops, and condos. And class two has residential buildings with 11 or more units. Uh, utility properties in class three and commercial properties in class four. Uh, so the city determines the market value for all parcels each year, employing one of three uh, generally accepted methods, basing values on comparable sales, replacement cost, or the expected return on an income stream, generally using net income capitalization. One important caveat is that, this, is that state law requires the city to value co-ops and condos as if they were rentals which means that the city uses the income stream of a comparable rental building to calculate the value, resulting in market values that are often substantially below the sales prices of these units. The city then applies its target assessment ratio to this market value. We call it a target because the assessed value cannot exceed this share of market value, but it can be lower. It is 6% in class one and 45% in the rest. The city has rules, mainly set in state law, that limit how much the assessed value can change from year to year. And these limitations apply to growth due to market forces, not physical improvements. For residential properties of 10 units or fewer, there is a cap on how much the assessed value can grow from year to year or over a five-year period. This cap results in lower assessment ratios for properties seeing rapid market appreciation as documented by CBC in a blog released yesterday. And for larger residential buildings and commercial properties, changes phase in over a five-year period. The next feature of the property tax that I want to discuss are class shares. There was a decision made in the 1980s that each class should pay roughly the same share of the levy as it did then with incremental annual adjustments to the shares to account for market uh, for appreciation and physical changes. Today, class one pays 15%, class two is at 38%, class three is nearly 6%, with class four picking up the remaining 41. The nominal tax rates are shown at the end, but they are not useful for comparing burdens because of all of the calculations that go into the assessed values. 
For example, class one has the highest nominal tax rate, but the lowest target assessment ratio and the benefit of caps. The comparative measure that is used is the effective tax rate, which measures property tax relative, or the property tax bill relative to the market value of the property, irrespective of the assessment calculation. Uh, so let's quickly put some numbers to the system. The city has over 1 million taxable properties with 65% in class one, 25% in class two, and less than 10% in class four. According to the DOF's method for calculating market value, there's $1.25 trillion of market value in the city. Uh, just under half is in class one and about 25% each in class two and four. Taxable assessed value, however, is $240 billion, so less than one-fifth of the market value, stemming from those assessment ratios, caps, and phase-ins, as well as exemptions. Unlike market value, class one has less than 10% of the assessed value, which is concentrated in classes two and four. The total levy allocated according to the shares I previously discussed is $29.6 billion. As I said, the city expects to collect $28 billion. The difference is the value of abatements and a reserve for delinquencies, tax reductions, and other adjustments. I calculate the effective tax rate in the last column using the levy and the DOF market values. The panelists will have a much more nuanced conversation about how to measure effective tax rates in the city. But we see that even given the higher nominal tax rate, the class share results in a lower effective tax rate in class one than the other classes. So how did we get this complicated system? Uh, back in 1975 in Hellerstein versus the town, uh, the assessor of the town of Islip, the system of fractional assessment was ruled in violation of state law, which called for full uniform valuation. Eventually, the state legislature enacted uh, acted and passed a law that essentially codified the existing system of classification, fractional assessment, as well as establishing the class shares. It was very much a decision to, ma uh, to maintain the status quo. In 1993, the Grayson Commission, appointed by Mayor Dinkins and Speaker Vallone, issued a comprehensive report in the final days of the Dinkins administration. The report asserted that the property tax was unfair, advantaged class one, and higher income property owners. Unfortunately, the recommendations were not enacted and these issues persist today. Many critiques and analysis of the property tax have been done since by groups like CBC, the RPA, the Independent Budget Office, and the Furman Center. But efforts in substantial reform have not gone anywhere and in recent years, taxpayers have gone back to the courts to push for legally mandated action. One lawsuit was dismissed in April 2015, and another, the Tax Equity Now New York uh, suit, is currently being litigated. So what are the main problems? Uh, there are five of them that I want to lay out. Valuation of property is not reflective of the market, and this is both due to statutory requirements, such as the requirement to value co-ops and condos as rentals, as well as the administrative implementation of the system such as determining capitalization rates and income and expenses of properties. Assessment growth caps and phase-ins lead to inequities and in tax burdens within the tax classes. So two similar single-family homes of the same value could have very different tax bills depending on what neighborhood they're in. Uh, the class share systems lead to inequities of tax burden between the classes. But given that these rules are, not, are set in state law, the city is constrained in what it can do to address the inequities. 
The array of tax reduction programs that exist are often poorly targeted and may direct relief to properties that already have lower tax burdens. And uh, lastly, but most fundamentally, the system lacks transparency and simplicity. In June, Mayor de Blasio and Speaker Johnson announced the formation of the New York City Advisory Commission on Property Tax Reform. Uh, it's co-chaired by Mark Shaw and Vicki Bean, who's joined us this morning, along with some of her fellow uh, commission members. The commission charge is to evaluate all aspects of the property tax system um, and recommend revenue neutral reforms that make the tax fairer, simpler, and more transparent. So as we turn to the panel discussion, I want to leave you with a few questions. Does the commission have the right charge? How should it go about its work? How will this effort differ from prior efforts? And how should the city's property tax be improved? Thank you. All right, thank you. Um, without further ado, I'm gonna do a quick introduction of the panelists and get right into it. We have an incredibly knowledgeable panel here, probably the most of any panel I've ever done on a particular topic. And I would be very remiss if I did not mention we have an incredible, incredibly knowledgeable audience as well. Um, so <laughs> we hope to kind of keep up with that and uh, keep the discussion kind of in depth and going. Um, and I think it's okay to be kind of, you know, more detailed and more nuanced rather than less in the discussion because of that. Um, so without further ado, from my left, we have uh, Mark Willis, Senior Fellow at the NYU Furman Center. We have Christy Peel, uh, Executive Director of the Center for New York City Neighborhoods. We have George Sweeting, uh, Deputy Director of the New York City Independent Budget Office. Uh, Martha Stark, former uh, commissioner of the New York City Department of Finance and uh, lead plaintiff for uh, Tax Equity Now in New York. And my old boss, the person who gave me my first job in New York City, Marianne Rothman, uh, the executive director of the Council in New York Co-ops and Condos. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with the question, the last question was kind of posed, which is what makes this commission different from all other commissions? Um, you know, we've been working on this issue ever since the, the Hellerstein case was resolved. Many of the reforms that have been proposed that were laid out have been similar over the last couple of decades. Um, I want to first ask, how can this commission be different? And then I'd like everybody to give just a very quick rundown of what you think the most important reform that the commission could institute uh, would be. We'll start with my left. So it's hard to say what will be different about the commission other than the brilliance of the people that are uh, on that commission, some of whom are in the room, in case you're wondering. Uh, uh, as Anna laid out, I think the most important thing is to get the facts right. I think we've had, uh, that's been a really critical uh, distraction, I would say, from, uh, from some of the discussions, so I think that's a piece of it. Uh, the second is, is to really think about uh, what I describe as something called path dependency. We might have wanted to start with a different tax system. This is the one we have. So you really need to think about uh, how you could move to a different one. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk a lot about winners and, and losers here. Uh, my first area, there are lots of uh, areas to uh, look at. My first area would be uh, class one. Uh, and. Uh, take it one a little bit more in the weeds, uh, phase in the elimination of the caps over time and put in place a circuit breaker for people uh, of lower income where th that would be a huge burden. 
I think that it's just the timing of it. I mean, look at the interest that we have here. There's so much hunger to really understand the system um, from a resident level to a policymaker level uh, across the board. So I, I think the timing is ripe um, from an economic perspective at the city. You know, we're really in a different phase now where we're trying to understand how we can maintain neighborhoods and maintain residents, and we're no longer looking at things from a, a perspective of trying to uh, incentivize investment in the same way. So uh, I think it's really exciting that we have a former housing commissioner uh, uh, on the commission because it's really important to align housing policy with tax policy. So that, that's a, an exciting opportunity. And I do think, given where we are in the conversation around income inequality and displacement, a, a focus uh, and, and a reform would be accounting for income and property taxes. Everybody knows the stories of, of homeowners who are sitting on uh, uh, equity, but they don't have a lot of income, you know, people who have aged and placed, and I think being able to account for uh, that differential across uh, resident types really uh, will, will be really helpful as well. So accounting for income for homeowners, condo owners, co-ops, and, and renters will, will make a big difference. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, what could make this different? Um, I think one thing might be the timing. Uh, I, w I was part of the staff on the 93 commission, and you know I still have some of the scars from that. But um, you know that commission was set up at the very last days, or it, it got got its work started in the very last days of the uh, what was hoped to be the first Dinkins administration with the expectation that you would, you would come out of that process with an agenda for things you could do in the second, um, uh, second Dinkins administration. Um, Martha in, in the Department of Finance had already done a whole lot of, of work to, um, to, to sort of lay out the issues. But then, of course, politics intervened, and uh, you know, the, the first public hearing of that uh, commission was actually the day after the election. Uh, in early November of 1993. So, you know, I think timing could matter here. Uh, there's also, of course, the issue of the, the lawsuit that will uh, bring additional pressure um, from outside the political process. Uh, so I guess I'm slightly optimistic that there, you know, we're starting this at a time when there's, there's a fair amount of time left in the, in the um, de Blasio administration. You're going to have some new leadership in, in Albany. And maybe you know maybe that cracks open the window a little bit. In terms of what um, what's the one thing to, to fix first? Is that the, the question? Um, you know, I, I, there were all of the equity questions, and I, I, I completely understand why the, the you know people are concerned about those. I think just to get a little techie, you can't deal with any of those until you get rid of the class share system. And so I think the class share system would be number one on my, my list. It's not only makes it much harder to actually implement uh, some of these reforms that would change the, the shares of assessed value and market value by different property types, but it also, right now, it's locking in what was already an unfair system from uh, 19, it's really 1981. We often say it locks in the 1989 shares, but it's really all the way back to 1981 um, and we can later on go through some of the, the, the gruesome details of how the system has been, you know, I, I would argue abused in order to continue uh, preferences that were, were baked in in 1981. When they were baked in, the expectation was you might, they might be a tool for gradually ameliorating some of those disparities, but actually it's turned into a tool for just continuing them. 
So that would be my first choice. Good morning. Um, I, I guess I should say, you know, what do they say the definition of insanity is? Um, I, I fear I am insane, um, as are several other people who have been working on this issue even um, earlier than I. So um, to answer your question, why is this commission different from every other? Or why is this night different? Anyway, I don't know. I, I, I think, I, I do think that the lawsuit is going to help. I actually think that if done correctly, the commission can rely on the lawsuit as um, a help to get sort of things done. We're currently in a stand where the city is actually opposing the lawsuit and asking that it be dismissed. Um, and I, but I believe the lawsuit will provide kind of a bit of um, both cover for the commission um, and the recommendations that a judge might make will also help maybe get things through the state. So I, I believe the lawsuit is an incredibly helpful driver and that um, it is about timing, but I think um, the timing of the lawsuit and what might um, transpire um, can help bolster what the commission is thinking about um, doing. And um, again, having that guidance might also help on the legislative front. Um, in terms of what I think might be the most important thing um, to focus on, and it's a little bit connected to what um, George said, but I wouldn't talk about it from a class share basis. I think it's from a transparency basis. We can't have a system that has fractional assessments. Um, fractional assessments um, make it so that nobody knows what their value is, um, and if they don't know what their value um, is, they don't even know that they're benefiting. Anna said this earlier in her remarks. Um, if the commission's about to have some public hearings, um, hoping we find out where they are. Um, we have the dates, but we don't have the locations as of yet. Um, uh, but I think at those public hearings, what we're going to hear, or what you guys are gonna hear, is everyone complaining about how high their taxes are. And the people who are in fact even benefiting do not know it. And we can't have a system where at least if you're benefiting, you should be able to sort of say, hey, I got this. I'm, I'm like, I'm doing all right. And that's why I want this to stay the same. But most people have no idea. And that's because we assess at a fraction. If you're talking about a co-op and condo, we assess it like it's a rental property. It bears absolutely no relationship to what the value is that a person would pay. And until we have um, that sort of taken care of from a transparency perspective with people really having a key idea about how their taxes compare to others, I think um, the system's gonna remain broken. It's tough coming last because um, almost everything I've thought of has been taken, uh, so I just have to second people. I agree strongly with George that the timing of this commission presents more opportunities than we had in 1993, but also we're at a crucial time for New York City. The new tax laws are going to enormously affect businesses in this city and enormously affect people who make their homes in this city. Uh, the property tax has taken a growing share of the money that people pay and with a radical reduction in what they'll be able to deduct as homeowner expenses, um, that can affect market prices, it can affect people leaving the city, it can affect the overall future of our city. So um, I'm very concerned about that. Um, and 
putting back on my, firmly my hat as executive director of the Council of New York Cooperatives and Condominiums and its Action Committee for Reasonable Real Estate Taxes, uh, the super priority for us is that all homes, all residential property should be assessed in a uniform way subject to the same tax rate. Then mitigating overlays should reduce these taxes for homes that are occupied by their owners as their primary residences and for owners meeting other qualifications, persons with disabilities, seniors, veterans, and those meeting income qualifiers and any other legitimate qualifier that I may have forgotten. These reductions would disappear, of course, when the resident leaves that home or otherwise no longer meets the qualification. Uh, oh, and I, uh, it's been said already also, uh, radical changes have to be phased in. You can't enormously uh, attack people whose taxes should be higher, uh, nor should there be enormous windfalls for individuals who've been um, overtaxed. I, so I was, in terms of the commission and where it was going to meet, I was going to say it should do one in each of the four tax classes, but I don't know how, how you do class three uh, at all for that one. Um, so I wanted to ask, one of the, the specific charge for the tax commission is that any reform should be revenue neutral. And, you know, to Martha's point of people don't always understand how they're advantaged in the system, uh, I wanted to ask the panel to, if they could get really specific with that, who pays too much and should see a break and how should those reforms go, but also how should they be offset and who pays too little. And, you know, when people hear property tax reform, they hear my taxes need to go down, and in a revenue-neutral system, that's not going to happen for everyone. Uh, so who should it happen for, and who should bear a little bit more of the burden? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open it to the floor. I don't, don't want to assign uh, first, second, third. Happy to go first. Um, <laughs> the... Modifications in the co-op condo abatement program that were enacted in January of uh, 2013 targeted primary residency. The abatement now only goes to individuals for whom their co-op or condo is their primary residence, and if that's the case, they can have the deduction on up to two additional units in the same co-op or condo where they make their home. In other words, a mirror of class one. However, there's no homeowner factor in class one. And there are enormous amounts of class one properties that are completely rental. Um, I do not advocate maintaining class shares or anything else, but that that's a huge target. The commercial use of property, the present commercial use of properties that have the benefits of class one should be a source of balance uh, in the system in the future. If you, if you want to see exactly how much disparities there are in the system, um, one way to do it is just, you know, take, if you look, say, if you limit it just to class one and look at all the properties in class one and look at their effective tax rates, um, 
And ju just assume you could do it in one year. And obviously, you can't have a system where you could have that kind of a jolt. But we did, uh, at IBO, we did a, a quick exercise on this a few months ago. And if you, if you just went to absolutely equal effective tax rate across class one, and that's, that's assuming that there's no capitalization of the changes, but that, which is a big assumption. But you would get, you would have to redistribute about $600 million of liability that's currently in class one. And class one is about $3 billion in, in liability. So it's, you know, it's, it's about 15% um, uh, of the liability would have to get shifted within, between the properties. And about 70% of class one properties would get a tax reduction if you did that. 97% um, of the properties in Staten Island would get a reduction. Um, the, the median reduction across all of class one would be, uh, the, the class one winners would be $1,100 per year. Their 30% would get an increase if you did this. And, um, Sort of, the, you know, and that's generally spread mostly among the other four boroughs. Staten Island, there, there are very few that uh, that would lose. Um, my particular neighborhood, uh, which is actually one of the the biggest winners in the current system, would be the biggest loser. Ninety-eight percent of the parcels in Park in Park Slope would get a tax increase, and the median the median increase there is eleven thousand dollars. So the median winner gets 1,100. The median loser in the worst neighborhood, Park Slope, gets $11,000 uh, tax increase if you did it in one year. So that, that's not a practical solution, but it gives you a sense of, of where the winners and the losers are in, this, in the current system and then what, what kind of change you'd have to do uh, to begin to move towards equalization. And certainly if you were moving towards equalization, You'd want to put in some uh, circuit breakers and other types of protections. But if you just did it all in one snap, that's what it would be. So I, I just want to pick up and, and relate back for a second here. The idea that the levy has to stay the same will make this more difficult. So if there is a difference in today, the city is much more prosperous. It probably could make some adjustments. There probably is more ability than there certainly was in the early 90s to, to uh, to change some of what we saw earlier in terms of who pays or what tax pays uh, for the city's uh, uh, services and what level of services we provide. Separate from that, George was very uh, uh, appropriate to mention I'm not going to think about capitalization. So I'm going to do a little wonky stuff here. And prices in the city have all adjusted to what the taxes are. So let's be realistic. So when you change the taxes, uh, that is, you do intra-class or uh, inter-class changes, you're actually going to likely affect land prices. Uh, and so who benefits from those changes? So we can talk about homeowners, would, uh, will, as George said, uh, some will uh, benefit and some will lose. In the case of uh, uh, apartment buildings, uh, current owners uh, will get a reduction and we will talk about this as to who's going to benefit from that. If I were to give a, a, a truly wonky economist answer, over the long run, changing the, reducing the taxes on apartment buildings, we should get more supply and rents should fall. In the short run, I'm not quite sure there are a lot of landlords that are going to uh, willingly pass on uh, any uh, uh, reduction in their taxes. So it's not just who's 
paying more or less compared to some ideal system, but you need to think about what's going to happen here uh, uh, if you do change this, who benefits in the short run, who benefits in the long run, uh, and how is that going to change the mix of rental versus uh, 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 ownership properties in the city and the balance between office space and uh, residential space. So uh, there's a much bigger question here between what's the long run, how it might have been if we didn't have this system and it started differently uh, with what will happen in what I'll call the short and median run before all the markets sort this out over the long run. I just wanted to sort of chime in uh, a little bit and, and ditto a couple of things that have been said already and then differentiate from a, a couple of things. So George's analysis, which I'm certain is spot on because what he um, does is always spot on, actually um, sort of does this 1,100 versus 11,000. And I, I think what happens when we do that is we don't talk about value. And so the reason why it's going to go up by 11,000 in Park Slope is because those properties are much more valuable. And so I think we have to get to a place where when we're thinking about, about this stuff, we keep referring back to value. And um, one of the ways that we try to do that is, it might seem like a very silly um, adjustment, um, but uh, someone here sort of said, let's think about taxes per million dollars of value. You know, uh, we could have a whole discussion about whether or not that's the right mechanism. Do we care that the property tax is actually based on value? But if you have, and I, I think that this for, um, for me is particularly relevant, is you have um, co-ops that are selling for 30, 40, 50 million dollars, and their taxes per million dollars of value are under 2,000 per million dollars. And then you have homeowners in Staten Island and Canarsie and um, parts of the Bronx who are paying twelve to $13,000 per million dollars of value. And so I kind of um, think that that's a problem in, in the system. So to go back to your question, Moses, though, about you know, what, what um, kind of makes this difficult, I think the revenue neutrality does make it harder. And I think that there's got to be a lot of things on the table as you're thinking about revenue neutrality. So um, Marianne, to my left, mentioned a co-op condo abatement. I do think that just primary residence isn't enough um, in terms of the co-op condo abatement. The co-op condo abatement dollars that are spent might need to be on the table in order to help pay for some of the reforms that need to be done. I think that that's kind of important. Who's really bearing the burden? I think it's very clear. Um, the Citizens Budget Commission just issued a report that we think is very supportive of what we claimed in our lawsuit. Um, if you have lower valued property in the city or you're in neighborhoods that are more stable, you are paying more than others. And the question of is that enough more or less, you know, should it be a 1% target? Should we pay 1% of our value in taxes? I don't know, but it's very clear that there are neighborhoods that are paying more. Last thing that I would just say is that if you are an owner of property in class two, that's the apartment building class, and you have a choice, between building a condo and building affordable housing or rental housing, you are going to choose to build a condo. And we don't want a tax system that actually um, has that um, effect in a city where we actually want um, rental property. So I would say rental properties are also getting um, 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 harmed in this. And I'm not answering Mark's question about what happens if there's a reduction. 
I, I agree with George and Moffer always. They have much more wisdom and uh, have worked on this uh, certainly well, almost as long as I have. I didn't want to point that out, but I was. Yeah, I, I, uh, I am definitely older, uh, and as as they know, actually, uh, as an economist, uh, a long time ago, worked on uh, the initial uh, analysis for the uh, Senate 7000 and this bill. Uh, not that propose something, but discovered that we effectively had classes back then. Um, so I just, there's a basic problem that um, uh, Martha has just pointed out here, which is, I think co-ops and condos, it, it is, makes no sense that they're not value based on, on value. There just isn't. There is a history of why that happened because we had um, uh, co-op conversions that uh, didn't require more than 15%. So. Uh, of ownership, and so they were basically rental, and we can talk about it. But today, it's created this really absurd situation where the very, very uh, expensive condos aren't paying anything in terms of value, and property tax is supposed to be on that. The question is what tax they should be paying, and should they be in class one with the other residential? If you put them in class one, it creates exactly the problem that Martha just pointed out, which is class one is taxed at a different rate, uh, the effective tax rate, we can debate exactly what it is. Um, and so you still have that problem between, between classes. Marianne, you want to respond to that at all? Yeah. Or, uh, or. I'm hoping we'll get away from the class system. Uh, the moment we, um, we can't help talking about class one and class two as they exist today, but I'm really hoping commissioners please um, think about a whole new system. Think about perhaps a category of commercial property and a category of residential property. And then there's the hard work of figuring out how to value us. I, I, just another thing to think about is that uh, within the class one structure, uh, the more, majority of folks that we work with who are um, homeowners who are incomes are usually below 100% of AMI. And, and there's a lot of them. You know, there's uh, probably close to 300,000 homeowners in New York City who make less than $55,000 a year. So when you're getting taxed at $5,000 a year, that's 10% of your income. And the comptroller just put out a report last week that really looked at the um, effect of your property taxes on your income. And, and there are a lot of uh, working families that we really want to keep in New York City who are paying a huge percentage of their income on property taxes. And, and to Marion's point, it will get worse next year with the, um, the re when the real implications of the federal tax bill hit. So we're all really anxious about that. Um, but I think the other piece is looking at owner occupancy. And again, you can apply that across uh, class one and class two, uh, particularly around um, uh, looking at some of the homestead exemptions that, that occur in other places in Philadelphia, and I think uh, um, Maryland have some really strong approaches that really uh, benefit long-term ownership. So I think that's one way to, to get at that, but also looking at other ways to um, differentiate between sort of a speculative investment uh, in residential property versus a, a residential approach, um, both looking at a pied-a-terre tax, uh, something that comes out outside of this conversation but is obviously um, impactful. We've been looking at how property flipping in neighborhoods like Canarsie and Jamaica and East New York really drives up the costs. And, and uh, that 6% cap uh, in neighborhoods like Park Slope helps to subsidize an increased purchase price. So every time you're selling a property uh, that benefits from the 6% cap, you're raising prices because somebody can pay more on a mortgage. And that's really hurting 
um, sort of newly gentrifying neighborhoods as well that have um, been, been, you know, conversely hurt by kind of a lower appreciation in the past. So once you start seeing that flipping activity happening, um, where pe people are putting in uh, money, selling a property for sometimes 200%, you know, that cap is no longer a protection, but you're, again, uh, the 6% gives that subsidy and, and allows for a higher purchase price. I mean, so in response to my question, I've heard essentially absentee owners in Park Slope, uh, townhouse owners. <laughs> um, are there... I want to quickly allow if there's other folks that are under tax and need to make it up, spit them out. Um, at the risk of um, you know sounding like we're picking on the co-ops and condos, I'd just like to you know some concrete numbers on the extent of uh, co-ops and condos are required to be valued as if they're rental properties, which forces the Department of Finance to do this sort of Alice in Wonderland make believe where you know I'm looking at something, it's owner occupied, but I'm going to value it using this other methodology, and you have to go out and find comparable buildings and it's very hard in many cases to find the right comparable building. It makes no sense at all to be doing it that way. One of the consequences you get of that, though, is a really significant discount on to market value when you value them by the methods that the Department of Finance tries to use. Um, our estimate, we've matched up uh, sales um, and, and compared that to the assessed value in, the, in those buildings. And we've done this numerous times, so I'm, I'm pretty confident that we're, it's, a pretty, it's a, a pretty solid approach at getting at this. It's an 80% discount on average. Um, and you know, the, the, it's about $530 billion of market value that's missing from our property tax base. You know, it's just completely vaporized. And then, you, you know, so everything else, one, you know, that, the system has to work around that. And so that's a group that, you know, I do think is undertaxed if you're looking for an alternative to Park Slope. Um, <laughs> um, I, I just was going to say, I, I own a co-op in Park Slope. So, and, 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 uh, and, and actually, I, I mean, I think we still have to stay in Park Slope because the co-ops in Park Slope also vis-a-vis, um, -vis, um, this is um, undervalued. You asked a question, Moses, though, of are there any other issues that one might want to um, also highlight? And I think this is um, actually lost kind of in the dialogue, but there is um, this issue of uh, the caps do not apply if you actually improve your property. So if you, in fact, decide you want to invest in your property to make sure that it's up to date and all of that stuff, that does not get phased in in any way, shape, and form, whether or not you're a homeowner or you're even an apartment building um, owner. And so I do think that that gets kind of lost in this um, um, dialogue, but I do think that if we go to a system where we talk about value, then um, the value, you know, some, in some instances, your value doesn't increase because you invested in it, and um, the way in which that value is captured by the department actually ends up uh, creating kind of a hybrid valuation method. So I, th I do, I do, con I'm concerned about owners who invest in their property, and then their taxes are significantly higher than nearby properties with similar value. And that was a big concern for homeowners repairing after Sandy, right? right. So they put in a lot of money, and they got a big tax bill. Absolutely, absolutely. So I. I 
I was going to just make two, two comments. One is, again, the co-op and condo issue really is about the very high ones. Uh, the research we uh, did a couple of years ago, which is very consistent here, is if you look at the effective tax rate based on sales price, co-ops and condos selling for, less, let's say, $4 million or less, they are basically taxed at the rate of single-family homes of class one. It's really it's the higher level that, that, that you get the most absurd result from this very strange. We could argue whether it should be taxed the same as class one, but uh, <clears throat> that's the reality. Well, that's by accident. They are I don't still know. homes. Right. I th you know, I, again, yeah. I'd love to do away with the, the, all classes, but um, I, I think you're absolutely accurate. I think the Department of Finance deserves some kudos for, I would say, in the last seven or eight years, they've found ways uh, to uh, really bring my apartment taxes way up. That does um, conflict with this and you're notion. you're giving them kudos It conflicts with that. this notion yeah. of transparency. None of us know how they do it. Absolutely. <laughs> That's absolutely correct. But I, and so are your statistics. I mean, I, uh, I think I pay about six to $7,000 per million dollars of value. Sure. Uh, uh, and I just want to point, Martha also pointed out in her other example, we do uh, go, uh, and I guess we did this with Sandy, we do go out of our way now to exempt when people make improvements. Right. So there are, J51 does that, 421A, both of them cap uh, you know, uh, increases uh, due to improvements. So, but J51 was also taken away. Well, right. Uh, right, we could we could kind of debate this. I just wanted to say one more thing. I'm sorry. Um, all properties valued by the income approach, commercial and otherwise, finances value is nowhere near the sales price. And I think that that's also a problem. Uh, you know, you might believe cor correctly that income-producing properties should be valued based on the income that they're gen they generate. But um, I, uh, a mentor of mine always said to me when I first learned stuff about the property tax, there are three mechanisms for arriving at value. There's cost, you can use the cost approach um, when something's new or whatever, you use the income approach um, and you use the sales approach. And she said, those three approaches should reconcile within 20% of each other. They should reconcile. It should be some relationship. We, have, we no longer have any such relationship. So it means that even commercial people, if you look across boroughs and across neighborhoods and you compare them to sales prices, in some of the lower-valued neighborhoods, finances value captures 60 to 80% of that sales price, and in Higher, it's 30 to 40 percent, and that's a problem. I feel like we all have to be really cognizant of, if I just bought this property and I'm looking at it and finance has valued it at 80 percent less than what I sold, bought it for, that's a problem. We've got to figure out how to get ourselves to a place where we all recognize the price as being related to what we think that value is. And if we don't have that in the system, no one's going to be able to um, understand it. All right. Okay. I, I want to I quickly get back to something Mark said earlier about the rental properties, um, if that's all right. Um, so the, uh, you know, the, the rents that people pay is somewhere between zero and 100 uh, uh, goes towards, or sorry, the property taxes in rental properties some portion of that is borne by the renters between zero and all of it. 
And if you're looking at reducing the tax burden for renters, I wanted to ask, you know, how do you make sure that some of that actually gets into the pocket of people who are renting? And especially considering that many of the people who most need relief, many of the low-income renters are in buildings, public housing, subsidized housing, that already don't pay any taxes. And how do you, how do you deal with that issue? So, so, you know, I do think that there is this important issue. You actually wrote, didn't your article touch on this, um, uh, Moses, that you just released, the uh, I, RPA did a our, our article said we have to figure out a way to do oh, okay. it, I, so I, I that's why it. I'm I love asking it. Um, the question. It, it was a great article. <laughs> um, so I do think that you do have to figure out um, how to deal with it. I mean, just as we said, all of the um, other issues underlying the property tax are inextricably linked to other things. I think... Um, uh, in this case, for apartment buildings, the taxes are inextricably linked to regulation, right? So I think that if you are in a regulated environment, um, for the reasons that you know Moses or like you laid out, it's possible that a uh, owner is paying $800 per month per apartment, and yet someone's rent might be $800 a month. And so I do think that if you want to have a mechanism, and I don't know what it would be, for ensuring that some savings went to, um, to renters, renters, you do pay the property tax. You pay the property tax. I mean, back when Carol O'Clerican, who really kind of got me into doing this stuff, um, I remember um, Deputy Mayor Bill Lynch saying to us, we should print buttons and give it out to renters to remind them that they pay the property tax because they don't actually think they do. So we need to figure out I mean, how much do they pay, but a certain percentage of their rent is certainly connected to the property tax and they need to know it. And then certainly they might be able to advocate for themselves about how much of um, the savings, if any, um, comes to fruition they should receive. So there are, two, there are two issues here. Uh, one is this, when I said path dependency, about exactly what would happen. You know, if the rent regulation system actually followed costs and included uh, taxes, which it does, uh, uh, the increase uh, that could be allowed under the Rent Guidelines Board could be maybe negative or less if you reduce the taxes. As we know, uh, the system is not working at all. It doesn't really reflect the increase in costs anymore. Uh, whether it ever gets around to do that again uh, uh, is something we could talk about, and the taxes could play play into that. And ir uh, irony here is that if you reduce the taxes on rental properties, then um, landlords will be able to pay more. Land prices may go up relatively, and it actually may be more expensive to build affordable housing. Uh, everybody thinks that the landlord is making all the money. If the landlord there's a tax system out there, uh, a, a levy that uh, this property pays. Somebody's going to pay to build this building or to buy this thing based on what the revenue is so that it's, it just gets built into the price, the acquisition price or the land price. It's already there. So um, you can say, well, the landowner, you know, can sell it for as much or, or sold it for more, depending on whether taxes are too high or, or too low. Uh, th that's not really the situation you are now. The landlord prices, uh, you know, their property based on what rents uh, they can get, and presumably there's some um, relationship there between what overall land prices in the city are. 
I, I do think land in the city and the way that um, we, I, I should say, I, I'm not we anymore, but the Department of Finance values land, it also results in it being lower than in fact what um, the sales price would be based on its developable foot. So I do think that there are some um, internal things that both that the, the agency can do to value things a little bit um, better and more consistent with the market. There's nothing that prevents us from valuing land based on sales price, right? And so unlike co-ops and condos where you have to value it based on rentals, nothing that prevents you from doing that. And I do think that might also um, help kind of equalize things, Mark. I, I, I appreciate what you said and I agree with it. I just um, wanted to sort of point out that land um, has an issue. With so let, let me just quickly clarify, when you say there's nothing to prevent us from valuing land based on developable price, does that mean we can do that administratively through the city and we don't need any changes through Absolutely. Albany? Absolutely, that's correct. So um, uh, land can be valued that way. Now, the only thing that's not, not valued, which I think is sort of an interesting um, a thing, is vacant land in the sky. So how do you value air rights, right? Because, in fact, the, you know, that might be kind of an easy amendment to say vacant land in the sky should be valued like vacant land that's not developed. Um, and anyway, giving, anyway that, that's, I'm, just, I'm talking off the top of my head here, but, um, but it's, it's something to sort of think about. I, I, it's super helpful for, you know, um, trying to achieve the goal of transparency and simplicity and um, getting a greater comprehension across uh, stakeholders to be really clear about what we can do in the city and what requires state intervention. So uh, as kind of a newer person to this conversation, if, if you guys can mention, um, you know, this is something we can do administratively, this is something we could do uh, within the commission, whereas this is something we'd have to advocate for on a state level. And I, I'd actually love to ask that question. I mean, most of the most of the conversations of reform are around changes in Albany. Um, you know, we just explored one that I, doesn't even need city legislation that can be done administratively. Are there other things that we can do without Albany that will make a real difference? Well, I mentioned a front about class one, and. Uh, so there is this issue about class shares. That really is a state issue. We're constrained in how much we can do. Um, all of you may be uh, shocked to hear that the assessment ratio for class one was either 18 or 20 percent back in 1980. Um, and so it's fallen to six. So, uh, and we've let that happen. And uh, partly the original legislation allowed flexibility to actually go in the other direction, but no one chose to do that. Uh, if you want to just comment on that, I was just gonna... I, I just want to, yeah, on the assessment ratio, um, it's interesting because um, the way it gets presented, even in Anna's presentation, she calls it a target ratio. It's actually supposed to be a uniform ratio. It's, that's, that's what it's called. I mean, we are uh, allowed to assess at a fraction provided it's uniform within each class. And no one, no one can say it's uniform at 6%. It's just not. So... That is why the ratio has been lowered. It went from 20% to 18%. Um, if I could call her out on it, um, it went then to 12%. Carol, in the early 1990s, lowered it to 8%. I lowered it to 6%. In Nassau County, which has a similar system, it's 0.25%. Because in order to have uniformity, unfortunately, because of caps, you can't increase more than a certain percent, you have to lower it. So that's something the city can do. They can lower the assessment ratio. Um, and they can do that on their own. 
without any assistance, and that would address the inequities within class one. But if I could just point out, I mean, I, I agree it would be a step, but it would be a one, it's basically a one-time fix. It's because you, you, you make that adjustment and you'll, yeah, unless you keep going down and lower and lower and lower, just going from, from six to four. I do not disagree with anything you're saying, but there's this quote about the best way to show the absurdity of a law is to actually implement it exactly as it is written. And we aren't doing that. So if you want to get to a place where you, I'm, I'm badly mangling the quote, but it's a really fantastic quote about, you know, you want to implement it. Yes, is that ridiculous? Perhaps, but then it might get us to a place where going to 100% is not difficult because now it's like really we are uniform at this percentage and so 100% is not as scary because then the rate comes down, yeah. right? So I just, um, I, I agree, yeah. yes, does you get to zero. Sorry, that's what the law actually says well, and we but should it, implement it. But it also says you have to have these caps, yes. so it's... The, the law itself is internally... Uh, no, but the uniformity requirement was I, the sin qua non of this system. It was. We're, we're, we're here to talk about how the law should be changed. So, <laughs> but, uh, so let me, let me, I'm going to give one quick uh, you know, yes or no or very short question, then I want to open it up to at least a couple of questions from the audience. We've talked about a, a lot about the class share system. Very simple. Should the class share system be abolished? And if so, what would you replace it with? Yeah. The previous question, if I can. <laughs> um, one of the things that we can do uh, today is, is look at the exemption system. We have some good exemptions. The senior uh, citizens uh, exemption process works well, and we could do a better job of expanding that for uh, lower income owner occupants, and we can do that across uh, uh, classes for owner occupants. So that's something that we can do today within the city. I think for understanding and tra transparency, it, you should get rid of it, but I'll go back to my very first thing, slowly. But before you, you get to, I mean, I, I think the class share system needs a major overhaul. But before you get to it, I think you have to first stop and say, what is the system we want? Do you want a system that has one class for everything? Or do, does it make sense in, in New York that we have perhaps two classes, a commercial and a residential, and then you have to think about, okay, where will the rentals go? Are they a commercial operation or are they residential? Where do the co-ops go? Presumably they go in with the homeowners. Um, so I think you, ne you need to answer that, and then you can begin to think about, well, what are the mechanisms, if you need any, that, try that prevent you know, politically motivated shifts of burden between commercial and, and residential, or if it's more narrowly, just homeowners. I mean, that, that's where the, the class share system was put in place in order to, to uh, continue the preference that was already in existence in 1975. And it was, it was explicit. We want to protect, we want to avoid a shift of, of additional burden onto class one from the commercial properties. And I think the commission has to think about how they're going to what, what is the ideal set of, of classes, and then how much protection do you need to, to put in place? Um, just, you, you asked for a yes, no answer, and, and no, we can't. I, I wasn't expecting can't, that can't that's it. the way that anyway, would go, um, I mean, just I, to be I, clear. I was wondering if it was possible to pull back up Anna's slide number five, because in that slide, she actually lays out what the finance kind of market value shares are, and then what the class levy shares are. Um, if you, 
num yeah, awesome. Um, and the reason why I just think that this is a useful slide to think about is that basically um, class one in this slide, the shares for finance is determined by sales price. Class one is the only class whose shares, yeah, next one, um, Anna, because there you have it. Um, yeah, um, so, so class one's the only one whose shares are based on actual sales price. Um, and finance does a reasonably good job of market value compared to sales price. The problems are within neighborhood and boroughs where sometimes they overestimate and other places they under. So then, um, the, so class one's finance market value shares are really sales price shares. Class two, for the reasons that we just talked about, the co-ops and condos are so significantly undervalued that 24.8% on an income approach, I'm not sure is correct. It doesn't necessarily um, represent that. And I would argue the same thing is true for class four because class four is not done based on sales price. So I play around with numbers too because I love numbers. Um, and I, my calculations suggest that if everybody's share of taxes were based on sales price, that as a matter of fact, the class levy shares wouldn't shift as much as we fear. Because here's the fear. Class one's going to go from 15.3% up to 47.5%. That's not going to happen. Because when you actually base shares on sales price, um, less likely that that dramatic a shift is going to actually um, happen. Um, my kind of rough calculation is class one does go up, but it actually might only go up to about 20%. Um, of the total and um, the other sort of stuff shifts itself out. So I just think that, um, you know, Anna started this out and uh, Moses, you did as well. We should be talking about data and we should be talking about facts um, based on that data. And until we do that, we're, we're fearful of acting um, because we think terrible things are going to happen. And I don't know how terrible the things are, but I do know the system needs to be changed. And to give, and I'll throw this exercise out to the audience also, to give one example to go way back in the conversation when George was talking about the $11,000 increase for uh, uh, you know, an undervalued home, a little under $1,000 a month, but the question is, if you put that $1,000 a month towards mortgage instead of taxes, how much would your property value really go down? And how much is that property worth now if it's one of the highest end properties? So kind of doing that exercise and seeing, oh, maybe taking a home that's valued at $5 million and now it's valued at $4 million when I bought it in 1977 for $150,000, um, you know, maybe that's not the worst, the worst thing in the world. Uh, so I want to quickly open the, yes, wait, I, I want to quickly open it to the audience. My biggest, my biggest request, no individual issues. Please keep questions general, not focused on your building and its property taxes. Uh, uh, George. Yeah. Thank you. Um, this has been wonderful, and uh, I, I think there's some real insights have been offered here. Um, let me give you a problem I'm trying to think about. A couple years back, um, Paul Krugman introduced us to the term kludge an inelegant and overly complicated solution to a problem. Um, and if there ever was a, a, an inelegant and overly complicated solution to the problem of taxation, this is it. Um, 
one of the things that if you look at tax policy, taxes in general are kludges. I mean, that's not different from our income tax or our, or our business taxes or anything else. Um, and kludges tend to emerge when there are many different pressure points and veto points in a decision process. Any, any place up the Hudson River one can think of that works that way? Um, and they also emerge when there is a kludge industry uh, that tends to hang out in, among other places, lobbies. Um, now, you know, so this is one of the things that, you know, so the tax commission can come down, we can sit down and think about what a very good tax system would look like, how lovely and clean it would look, what a, what a good economic advice would be, et cetera, et cetera. But then we've got a process that goes out to the other end. And, you know, there's a, there's a second angle that you could take and that you could sit down and you could say, okay, here are some, here are some components of an improvement, some things we can fix and, you know, that are going to go into the and go into, you know, the kludge machine and the pressure points. So do you have any advice for the commission on how we should be thinking about, you know, this next stage in the issue, which, by the way, is not really the commission's responsibility. That's the commission of the political leadership when they get our advice. But still, we want to be useful to them. I'm hesitant to tell these folks who <laughs> know an awful lot about this what to do, but my plea would be start with identifying what you would want and identify, you know, what would be the best tax system that you could come up with for New York City. And then you're going to have to think about, okay, how, first of all, what kind of transition do you need? And also, what, how, do you, how do you implement that? But it would be nice to start with, here's what we really want, the, what we would like the city's tax system to be. Um, and I think even, even if you have to abandon that, if you stake that out, it's, it's, a, it's a good and useful marker for people. Um, so that, that would be my advice. Um, back, way back in the corner over there. Yes. Uh, good morning. Uh, we're talking about percentages based on potential sales price or, pot or, or actual sales price. My question is to what has gone into that what's known as market value, which is really price, because sometimes the va value is a, a word that is not a mathematical word to me. Uh, it's about what people think it should be. We have such a disparity in New York City on the way real estate changes hands. And the biggest problem that I've had probably for the last 25 years since I became aware of it is the amount of cash in the market. And I don't mean cash that you go to the bank and you get a cashier's check. It means that you show up at the closing with bags of greenbacks. And that is a huge, huge problem with huge amounts of money that showed up about 25 years ago or so and continues. Now, if you're basing all of this, percentages, but how much of that reality of cash in the market, the real estate market, is being captured in that analysis? Because it, from neighborhood to neighborhood, the disparities are huge. What happens in one neighborhood affects the next neighborhood over. And we seem to be, those of us regular folk, seem to be at the mercy Working people, lower income, uh, lower in lower income, uh, middle income people, who do not have cash to show up at a closing, are being left out of the market. It, it's like a, free, a wild, wild west out there. So, is 
are we able, even able to capture? Is, is there some kind of method that is being methodology when all these numbers are put together that takes that into consideration? I don't know if there's a, a Department of Finance way of discounting uh, a sales price based on uh, a recorded mortgage versus a cash sale. So I think it's a really interesting question. Um, one way to think about it on the other side is looking at something like a flip tax where you're, and again, this is not within this closed system, it, it's a different type of tax, but where you would um, be looking at a, a, a cash buyer who's looking to uh, realize gains in a, in a less than 12-month period, you could tax that differently. Another way is to give preference to owner-occupants uh, uh, through a longer-term um, homestead-type tax uh, exemption or abatement. But I think uh, it's a really interesting question that we uh, that I don't certainly have a lot of data on. Do you know anything from the internal working side? Looking at Karen, George is looking at Karen. We're all looking at Karen. Karen Schlein is here from the Department of Finance, and she's our resident um, expert on how kind of the models are done and stuff. Yeah. Hi, I'm Karen Schlein, um, Associate Commissioner for Tax Policy. I am not officially involved with uh, deriving these market values, but I can say that they are based on regressions, looking at sold parcels, and. Uh, predicting the value of unsold parcels, and they're updated each year to reflect all uh, class one sales. So um, having said that, and I'm not an economist, I don't actually see the distinction between how, between the actual, how the funding of the transaction affects the uh, price that clears the market. So when we look at sales, of course, we spend a lot of time um, identifying and eliminating transactions that are not arm's length because you only want to look at pure arm's length transactions. Whether the sale is financed through cash or through a loan, I'm, I may be missing something, but how does that necessarily impact the price that clears the market? So I don't, my understanding is that we don't look at the financing mechanism when we feed the sales into our regression models. I mean, I think it's a good question, though, um, to sort of think about, is it, um, is the price as a result of cash higher, um, and if it's more dominant in a particular market, how one discounts against that? It's a good question. Right. Uh, one, more, one more in the front, and then we got to go. Sure. Just a, I was going to ask a question about the forgotten class, class three, um, and uh, who pays class threes taxes, because I, I think there's a lot of, there's some, we, we all there's some, there's some Every, mystery around it that would be helpful if you clarified that. Yeah, I, I started my career actually representing utility um, companies, and those taxes are passed on dollar to, by dollar to homeowners, apartment buildings, and commercial. So there should be some vested interest in actually, we have some of the, low, um, the highest energy um, cost and a significant portion of that has to do with the taxes and class three um, is um, as a class really paying much, much more than um, they would if they were based on really market value. I think their share would come down from like 6% to about 2 or 3% actually. Is this, here we go. Want to do one more? Let's, let's go with Carol. Um. I just, uh, 
echo Christine uh, and uh, Marianne that I hope uh, the commissioners can take into account people who live in co-ops who don't have high incomes who need to stay there. I chaired co-op boards and uh, there were quite a few of the residents who uh, just can't absorb any increases in uh, their costs. Well, and I may not have made this point it's clearly before, but I think it's really important for the housing policy of, you know, trying to keep people in their homes and preserve affordable housing, preserve affordable homeownership, be aligned with tax policy in a way that tries to achieve the same goals where you're not trying to realize a lot of revenue through, you know, frequent sales and high prices and then having to pay to find new housing for that person on the other end. I just want to point out, there are tools other places use. I mentioned circuit breakers. There are homestead exemptions with income limits. There are ways uh, to uh, try and be sensitive to whether people's income matches the value of their property and which the property tax is based on. All right, uh, everybody, I'd like to give a big hand to Marianne Rothman, Martha Stark, George Sweeting, Christy Peel, Mark Willis. I have to go. Somebody who knows something about property taxes will stick around to answer more questions in this room, I'm reasonably sure. Um, and thank you to Citizens Budget Commission, uh, New York University Wagner for co-sponsoring. I think it's been a great panel, and it'll be interesting to, to see what comes out of the commission. Bye.